We read God's Word this morning in John 4, and we'll read the first 26 verses. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Thus far we read the word of God. With that note that God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, we turn also to Lord's Day 35 for our instruction this morning.
What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship Him in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids us to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved saints in Christ, do you think about God often? I mean, not just are there God thoughts or, or religious thoughts that go through your mind. Do you think about who God is and what He's like? Does it cross your mind that everything you and I do, everything we say, Everything we think must be governed by a proper understanding of who and what He is. We don't often enough, that's true, but we do from time to time, and we must, and we must today. And with those questions in mind, we come to church to learn. To learn not something brand new. This God is an eternal God. What we are to know of Him is not something new for us from what it was five years ago or 500 years ago. But we come to learn to be reminded of what we have been taught and the church of all ages has been taught so that we worship Him rightly, publicly, and that our own private devotion to and service of Him be genuine and heartfelt. What kind of God is God? This is the question that Jesus asks the Samaritan woman. And in her, He's really, therefore it's written in Scripture, in her, He's really teaching us all. He sees her, first of all, as a child of God, at least One who must be brought to faith. She's a Samaritan. She's not a Jew. She does not know much about the one true God. In fact, with the Samaritans, she has a rather wrong idea of the one true God. You remember that the Samaritans were people taken from all different countries when the Babylonians, uh, when the Assyrians had captured the northern kingdom of Israel, and they scattered all of the captives throughout their realm so that none of them could easily regroup. And so a group of people are put there in a land that was part of the promised land to God's people. And they needed to be taught about God. So priests were sent to them, not faithful priests, but corrupt priests who taught them some things about Jehovah. They have a rudimentary, a very basic knowledge of this Jehovah, but according to their knowledge, he does not have to be worshipped in Jerusalem. He may be worshipped on this high hill here, and on that hill and grove over there. 
They don't understand him to be a spirit God to who, of whom you may not make an image. They corrupt the worship of the one true God. And Jesus says to her, you need to learn about the one true God, what he's like. And this is going to change the way you worship, but not only you. There comes a time when even the Jews are going to worship differently because God is spirit. So as Jesus taught the woman, he's going to teach us today. As we examine the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, it's my intent to do so under this theme, taught by Christ in the school of the law, or when it comes to prayer, taught by Christ in the school of prayer. And in each sermon, we're going to use passages from the Gospels as our reading, and even the words of Jesus himself, not to make the mistake that some Christians make, that if you have a red letter Bible, the words that are written in red are more holy than any other words, but instead to drive home the point that this Jesus Christ is the great prophet. He's the one who understands what the law really meant. And therefore, he's going to teach us what the law really means. And doing something more than any mere prophet can do, he is going to give us the power to obey. Oh, he's the teacher we need. There are teachers who give you the head knowledge. And then students, it's up to you to go home and do it, isn't it? And that's hard sometimes. It's really true of every teacher at Eastside Christian or Covenant Christian or whatever school you go to. The teacher can give you the facts. He can even, or she can even do more than give you the facts. He can point you to God and and do what he or she can to work in you a love for this God. And then it's up to you to go apply the facts. If you came to hear Prof. Kuiper today, you're in the same boat. It's up to you to go apply the facts. But if you've come to hear Jesus Christ speak through an earthly preacher, then you've come to the teacher who will empower us to obey. We want to be taught from Him. Taught by Christ in the school of the law. The first lesson that that school teaches has to do with the purpose of the law and the broad content of the law, and that was Lord's Day 34, the first part. The second lesson that that school teaches is that there is one only God. And so if you worship two, you and another, the true one perhaps, or three, the true God and some other idol God and yourself, then your worship is wrong. Our worship must be of one only true God. And that was the second part of Lord's Day 34. And the third lesson that we're taught in this school now, as set forth in Lord's Day 35, is that if you say you are worshiping the one true God, and none other, but not worshiping Him in accordance with the holy, glorious, spirit God that He is, then our worship still is not pleasing in His sight. And so I call your attention to this under the theme, Our Spirit, God. We're going to have, first of all, a lesson about God. 
Secondly, a lesson about images. And thirdly, a lesson about worship. Jesus Christ teaches a fundamental lesson about Jehovah God when he says God is spirit. I omitted that word a because it's not found in the Greek and it really ought not be found either in the English. The point is not that of many spirits, God happens to be one of them. Rather, the point is that God's being, His character, is spirit or spiritual. The reference then is not to the third person of the Holy Trin- of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but the point is that when you think of Jehovah God and understand and try to explain to others what He is like, you may not and we must not imagine Him as made up of matter. He does reveal Himself in the Bible in figures of speech called anthropomorphisms and refer to Himself as having hands and nose and face and arms and such, ears and tongue. But do not imagine that He really does the way humans do. He has no form. He has no shape. He has no color. Therefore, we'll see, you may not and we cannot make an image of Him. He's Spirit. Something that you and I, who are creature, who are of the earth earthy, who are so visual and can only see things in three dimensions, have a hard time comprehending, but must believe. Now there's something else about His being Spirit. Not only is He not something you can describe in a physical, creaturely way, but in addition, when we read that God is Spirit, what we're being taught is that all the things that really comprise Him are spiritual things. And I'm referring to His attributes. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is sovereign and independent. He is powerful, all-powerful. He's holy. He's just. He's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's long-suffering. He's forbearing. There are even more. When we say that God is spirit, what we mean is that all these different characteristics of Him that the Bible makes known to us are who and what God is. And therefore, if you're going to think of God, you must think of Him in those terms. And how do you know of them? Well, in His Word. God has commanded us in His Word how to worship them because God in His Word has made Himself known. There's something about God, one of the attributes, that's called His simplicity. And that's a point being underscored here too when when we're taught that God is spirit. His simplicity does not mean that He's not a very bright being. His simplicity means that you think of God, you have to think of all these attributes all together as being manifest and exercised at every moment in every way, in harmony with each other. You could cut off my right arm and still call me 
Prof. Kuiper. Could take off both my arms and both my legs and some of my internal organs and cut off my ears and nose and call me Prof. Kuiper. You cannot take away the justice of God and leave him with his other, let's say, 20 attributes, but I'm just throwing out a number, and still have God. He is all of his attributes, all together, all the time. That's his simplicity. He's not complex. Now, the consequence of all of this is that no man can see him. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And Paul says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. You cannot see Him. And it's this fact that underlies the second commandment. One way in which it becomes clear that the doctrine of God being spirit and the simplicity of His attributes underlies the second commandment is that if you read the second commandment, you see a number of attributes mentioned. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, in the earth beneath, or under the earth. Don't bow down to them, or serve them. That's the heart of the commandment. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And then when he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, he says he's a just God. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. And embedded in mercy is that he is a gracious and a loving God. Several attributes come out here. That he's jealous means that he has a passion, a zeal for his glory. I and you may not be jealous. Because when we are jealous of another, then we want what they have. And we want what they have so that we appear better. When we see, though, that Jehovah is jealous, nothing wrong is being said of him. That he's jealous means that he desires to be glorified above every other creature. And he may, because he's God, because he's eternal, because he's the creator of all things. When, therefore, somebody worships another and calls it God, or worships the one glorious God in the form of a statue, Jehovah says, I'm jealous. The glory that was due to His holy name was not given to Him. He's a jealous God. In the second place, underlying His jealousy, although the second commandment does not mention it, is His holiness. His holiness is not just that he doesn't sin. That's true. That's a part of it. It's not just that. His holiness is that everything he thinks and says and does, he does with a view to promoting his glory and making his honor greater yet. He is so devoted to himself and therefore will not share his glory with another. When he visits iniquity upon one another, he says that he's just. In other words, sin is punished. Yes, that's part of it. It's also a beautiful attribute when you see that in his justice, he sent Jesus Christ to the death of the cross. But he is just, 
And he will punish sin. And that sinner whose sin is not covered by the blood of Christ will be eternally destroyed. And he warns us against that. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, implied in which is a warning to every father that he teaches child the truth about Jehovah God and live that truth in his own life and not lead his children astray. And fourthly, there is the mercy of God, the compassion, the pity for sinners, the love, the desire to maintain and to restore a covenant relationship with elect sinners in Jesus Christ and that leads him to regenerate us and work all the blessings of salvation in us. The second commandment, by some of its own wording, as well as by the underlying truth that God is spirit, points us to his attributes, to who and what he is. This part of the lesson has a twofold effect on us. In the first place, it has the effect of pointing us to Jesus Christ and to see in Him the truth about Jehovah God. It points us to Jesus Christ to understand that in Christ, both mercy and truth and righteousness and power and all God's attributes come together. As I'll explain more in the second point, if you want to know who God is, Behold Jesus Christ. So that's one effect this part of the lesson has. A second certainly is this. That I now praise this God, adore Him, stand in awe of Him with greater fervor and more heartfelt devotion. There is nobody but the Christian who has this God as our God. And nobody but a Christian who can speak of a God with awe and reverence. Every other person, every other person serving another God and part of another religion can only stand really in fear of their God. But our God is glorious. And that comforts us. It leads us to adore Him. Well, underlying or underlying the second commandment is this lesson about God. Let's come in the second place to the lesson about images, which is more on the surface of the second commandment. Because God is spirit, we may not make images of Him. Now, there are some who misunderstand the second commandment to teach that we may not make images, period. I refer, for instance, to the Amish who say that you may have a picture taken of yourself. A painting uh, may not be a painting of a person. There may be no portrayal of some earthly thing. That's not the point of the second commandment. The very God who forbade the Israelites at Mount Sinai to make an image of Him or to worship Him image as though they were worshiping Him, that very same God said, when you make the tabernacle... And later on, when Solomon made the temple, he permitted Solomon to put carvings and statues and pictures embroidered in the tapestry. And he said above that mercy seat, you're going to create cherubims, golden cherubims. So 
Jehovah permits us to make pictures of earthly things. There are two things we may not do. One thing we may not do is make a picture of an earthly thing and say, that's God. That, of course, is what Aaron did at Mount Sinai. Take the golden earrings of all the people, throw them in the fire and melt them down. Cast them into the form of a golden calf. And he said, you want to look at the God who took you out of Egypt, Israel? Look at the golden calf. That's your God. This is what Jeroboam did when he put a golden calf up in the north in Dan and in the south of the northern kingdom in Bethel. And he said, this is your God. And Jehovah God is saying, do not make an image and say that is what your God looks like. The second prohibition is that regardless of what the image looks like, we say that in serving an image, we are serving God Himself. Now these two things go hand in hand, really. If you were to make an image and say that's what God looks like, you would bow down to it. If you ever do bow down to an image, then implied is that you understand that's what God looks like. And these are the things that God is forbidding. Why? Because God is spirit. How can a golden calf, even though it's made of precious metals and is very brilliant, the sun shines on it and it reflects, still, how can a golden calf Reflect the glory of God. And the thing can't see, can't smell, can't hear, can't even walk. It's got four legs and there it stands in place. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt? Was that God not all powerful? Could he not go ahead of Israel to defend them and to guide them? How could that calf manifest the glory of Jehovah God? The question is, have we made images? Of course, if we have, we've probably done so in a much more refined manner. So that you might say to yourself immediately, of course not, I don't have an image of God in my house. I don't bow down to and worship an image. Oh, but you know that people do that when they write little children's books, right? And they try to picture, now I'm going to say Jesus, Jesus in the flesh, but Jesus who is God in the flesh, they try to picture him in a human form. He was a human. I don't dispute that. But what a depicting of him in some human form does not convey is the glory of his divine being. I don't mean just to isolate that as if that's the greatest way in which we make an image, though. My point in that one was just to illustrate it does happen. And they're all around us. The question even more is, how do we think of God? You come to Him in prayer. Try to form a picture of Him so that you have a picture of who you're praying to. Is it an earthly form? That's an image of God. Do we think of Him? Another way in which men make an image 
apart from how he reveals himself in his word. In other words, throughout history, there have been people, there even are today, who imagine God is a God of love. He loves, he's all love. He loves everybody. Now, without question, he loves. But it's the portrayal of his love at the expense of any speaking of his being holy and just that is an image of God. Theologians and those who even profess to be Reformed believers Make such an image. Think, without my giving any more examples, consider your life and ask, how do you think of God or view Him in a way different from how He makes Himself known in His Word? Those are images. We are guilty too. and must not only point the finger at others. Here, beloved, though, for guilty sinners is the gospel. You and I do not need, we do, we do it, but we don't need to think of God in terms of an image because He gave His own image for us to behold. And He did that not, first of all, in the Holy Scriptures. That's not an image. They reveal God, of course. They tell us what we need to know about Him. But He did so especially in Jesus Christ, who is not just a man, but God in the flesh, and of whom the Scripture said, He is the image of the invisible God. So do you ever say, I'm reading the Bible. I'm trying to understand what I, what I must know about God. I want to take that to heart. But could I have a concrete illustration? The answer is yes, you do. In Jesus Christ. And then you might say to yourself, well, wish I had been alive when he was then, because I can't see him now. And the answer is, oh, that's where there's a misunderstanding. It wasn't the eyes, the physical face, the ears, the nose of Jesus Christ that was the revelation of God. It is his love for sinners, his compassion. It is His power whereby He could raise from the dead and heal the sick. It is His justice when He said to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you! And take that all together and bring them to one moment when Jesus Christ died on the cross. You don't need to have seen him while he was alive. The Bible again makes known the true Jesus as our Savior and shows that in him and in his death on the cross, all God's perfections, all 20, if there are 20 of them, shine together. There's your image of God. Of God. So when you want to know what God looks like, when you say, I need to know this in order to pray to Him better, I need to know this in order to worship and serve Him better, behold your Savior. There's something to add. Part of the saving work of Jesus Christ is that He takes that image 
which Adam and Eve had once had. They were created in the image of God and which they lost in the fall and having taken that image to himself and died on your and my behalf, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, restores us to that image. The restoration work is in progress right now, of course. It's begun. It has begun. But it's in progress, and it doesn't appear that much progress has been made sometimes when we look at ourselves and when we look at others. So we have a great day that's coming, heaven, when we will have been finally perfected and restored to that image. But already now, behold in yourself, not you as you are in Adam by nature, you as you are in Jesus Christ. The image of God. It's just a partial, and it's even marred by sin, but it's a beginning. I didn't say look first at you as the image, and then if you need to look farther, look to Christ. I said first you look to Christ. He is the image. Now when you see in yourself just a beginning, a faint beginning of being restored to that image, you know that you've had the Holy Spirit work in you and the Spirit glory, the spiritual glory of God has begun to be worked in you and He is bringing you more and more to see Him. You don't need an image of God. You need Christ. You understand the great practical implication of all this? Do you understand how this is going to drive you and me to open up the Scriptures? Again and again, at every page, to look for Him. I'm not going to say now, if this is the lesson about images, I'm not going to say, well, I, we read through the Bible sometimes, or we've done it several times at, at family devotions at dinner time. And I've gone to catechism, I've gone to Christian grade school, and I've heard Bible stories. I don't need to open up my Bible. This has the opposite effect. This drives us to open up the Scriptures and behold our Savior. Thirdly, there's a lesson about worship. Really, that lesson about worship is embedded and tied up with the lesson about images. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. And therefore comes up the entire question, so what about worship? Perhaps, perhaps I mustn't have images in all other aspects of my life, but maybe I may in worship. How's that? And you understand when the Reformed Fathers say, but may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Then it has Roman Catholicism in mind. Rome says, we're going to have statues in our church. Not just we have pictures on our wall, and not just that there may be pictures of, oh, former pastors or some artwork down in the basement. That's not the point. In the sanctuary where God is worshipped, we're going to have a statue of Mary, a statue of Jesus, and there are going to be other things 
which we're going to use as teaching lessons. While the child of God is permitted to make pictures, so long as he doesn't worship God by them or think they are God, another lesson being taught that relates to worship is no pictures in the worship service. Rome, and even some Anglicanism, is wrong there. But at bottom, there's a bigger question about worship. What must our worship be like? What things are permitted us to do in worship? And even more, because it doesn't just come down to what may we do and what may we do, even more, what must our heart be like as we come to worship Jehovah God? These are questions that the second commandment explains, or rather addresses, and the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation certainly does as well. We may not worship God in any other way than He has commanded in His Word. And clearly it's to this point that Jesus is also speaking. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And therefore you have, on the basis of the second commandment, what is called the regulative principle of worship. This is one of three things I want to say now in the lesson about worship. Number one has to do with the regulative principle of worship, which is to say, what sorts of things may we do and what may we not do in worship? Answer number one, we may read the Bible. We may sing the Scriptures We may hear the Scriptures expounded. We may administer the sacraments that Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Scriptures, instituted. We may pray to the one only true God. These things we may do. Why? Not just because they're nice things to do in worship, but because they're the sorts of things the Church of Jesus Christ always did in worship as Jehovah God taught her in the Old Testament how to worship Him. They have scriptural warrant. That means that we are still going to oppose any idea or practice in worship. Now some would say you need to draw a bigger crowd and to be relevant, and to be contemporary, but we are going to say has no scriptural basis. It is a reason why we're not going to have a drama, a liturgical drama, a reportraying in dramatic form of some scripture event. How is that different from an image in the church as books to the laity, as a way to teach the common people? It means, too, that we're not going to permit any kind of entertainment. But this is especially what it means. Because once again, I don't want only to look at others and say we're different and we're better. This is especially what it means. The very heart of our worship is a conversation with us and Jehovah 
And in that conversation, when Jehovah speaks, we listen. Just to say, the preaching of the gospel is central. And that's where so much worship goes wrong today. It isn't just a matter of what's in the worship or what's not in the worship. What's wrong with so much worship today is that the preaching of the gospel is not central. Maybe what's preached is not the gospel. That would be one way. Maybe what's said is the gospel, but it's not developed. It's not driven home. Maybe it's just a five-minute thing. I don't want you to get too bored when you come to church today, so I'll keep it to five or ten minutes. No! When you come to church, you come to hear the gospel. Children, you will have friends, perhaps someday. I mean, acquaintances at work, at college, who think your church is kind of strange because you have a 45-minute sermon. You might not be able to explain to them how their thinking is wrong, but I want you to pity them for not being in a church that has a 45 or so minute sermon. And again, it isn't the length of the sermon that's the key thing. It's that in the sermon, you come face to face with Jesus Christ, your Savior. Lesson one in this connection had to do with the regulative principle of worship. Number two has to do with the nature of what worship is. We come to worship to fellowship with this God. We come to praise, adore, and worship and reverence Him. And we do so realizing that if it were not for Him, if it were not for His work in us, we wouldn't and we couldn't. And here again, we're setting our worship apart from the worship of many others today. The Arminian, when he comes to worship, I mean a good, consistent Arminian now, one who understands the principles of Arminianism and carries them through in his life, he comes to worship. He comes to worship to say, I've got to show my faith today again. I've got to show my faith so that God can see how great my faith is. The Pelagian when he comes to worship, does it the way Cain did. I grew some good fruit this week, Lord. I'd like you to see it. Don't you like me because of the good fruit I grew? The contemporary worship has this approach. God is going to be pleased with absolutely anything you do in worship. Do what you want. He's going to be pleased with it because your motive is good. And the Reformed believer says, no. I come to worship the Holy God and have fellowship with Him. Once again, I set forth the Reformed position But just because you and I are reformed doesn't mean we need no longer examine ourselves and we can pat ourselves on the back as if we got it right. Are you and am I, as we come to church, coming to stand in awe of God? It may be that in a sermon you don't hear anything new. 
that actually is not a bad thing if you're a 50 or so year old person and you've heard the gospel many times. You really don't want to hear something brand new. But it might be that the fruit and the effect of the worship is that you stood in greater awe of your God. That was profitable worship. That was worship in spirit and in truth. The third point to drive home in this connection has to do then with personal participation in worship. Really, worship is a covenantal activity. God speaks to us as a congregation, and we as a congregation speak back to Him. And that's why it has been reformed practice not to have choirs or uh, the take a person of the congregation to come up and read a passage of Scripture. It's the one called to the offices who leads in worship, but especially to underscore the fact that we all are participating. It might look like only one is. Where's your mind? What have you been doing for the last 40 minutes? Have you been listening? Have you been digesting? That's personal participation in worship. Now here we come again to the fact that to worship is hard work. You talk about the hard work of a minister preparing a sermon. Well, that's hard work too. But it's hard work to sit and listen and participate in spirit and in truth. That is to say, I'm going to keep listening. I'm going to try to keep my mind from wandering because I want to draw nearer and nearer to this God. That's hard work. And so you and I again recognize that we fail. We make a good beginning, we have a good intention, and we do not perfectly carry it out. So at the end of all these three lessons, the lessons about God, about images, and about worship, we are left not saying, wow, we did pretty good at the second commandment, but we're left saying, is the Lord going to have fellowship now with me? He said he was just. He said he'd visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And look at my sin. Will he have fellowship with me? And the answer is, he satisfied his justice on behalf of your sins in Jesus Christ. He has fellowship with us. And what we have today in beginning for he is going to give us to enjoy perfectly to all eternity, sinlessly, uninterruptedly. Our minds will not wander in the day of the return of Jesus Christ, for which day we long and yearn. And until it comes, we worship God meaningfully in spirit and in truth. Amen. Heavenly Father, we've been taught by our Savior Jesus Christ, who not only gave us a good lesson to learn, but by His Holy Spirit in us and His example drives the lesson home. May He do that for us today, for Jesus' sake.
Amen.